I personally am most inspired by kind of everyday people who you walk by on the street who we don't really think uh, is carrying a world inside themselves, but everybody is. You're listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Our next season begins September 25th. We are very excited to share new conversations with you. In the meantime, we decided to handpick three past episodes with artists and designers whose work has taken a timely or transformative turn. For these encore episodes, we caught up with our guests and incorporated new interview tape into the original. In this episode, we turn our attention back to Wendy McNaughton, who designed, among other things, her job title. She is an illustrator, journalist, social worker whose whimsical and wise graphic journalism can be found in her column in the New York Times. In one of her most fascinating stories, she documents the process of turning her car into a traveling art studio. The project was inspired by McNaughton's insight into the very nature of the creative process. Inspiration is most often sparked when we leave our comfort zone, hit the road, and enter the realm of uncertainty. Anyone familiar with this podcast will recognize how loudly that idea resonates with my own investigations into creativity. So we decided to catch up with Wendy again, fresh off her summer idea-generating solo road trip to get her takeaways on going mobile in her traveling studio. So um, I'm Wendy McNaughton. I'm an illustrator and a graphic journalist. I'm putting quotation marks around that. Um, I'm going to start over because I actually don't want to put quotation marks around that because that is a solid profession that people need to know about. My name is Wendy McNaughton. I'm an illustrator and a graphic journalist. And I am currently in San Francisco sitting in the back of a mobile studio which is kind of a fancy way of saying a Honda Element that has been built out to have a drawing table and a bed parked on the side of the street because it's street cleaning. For the past year, I've had a column at the New York Times in the Sunday business section called Meanwhile. It's an extension of this um, body of work called Meanwhile that I've been doing for about 10 years. So it's kind of crazy. Over the past 10 years, I've amassed this very large body of work um, all about meanwhile, which means like things that happen in the meanwhile, the things that we don't usually notice or pay attention to, but again, things that I feel really deserve to be celebrated. I wanted to get outside of my familiar environment, which is San Francisco, which is where I'm based. I travel a lot, but I wanted to deliberately put myself out to just meet different kinds of folks. I was doing the road trips a lot uh, when I was renting cars or I was taking my own and I was having to stay in uh, motels and such. And I was like schlepping my art supplies in and out and setting up my space to draw, to paint inside of like a Super 8 motel. And it was A, getting expensive and B, just like, I'm a pain in the butt. I had a, a conversation with a friend who, she said like, why not actually try and, you know, if you could do your dream thing, what would it be? And, okay, I have to, there's a street sweeper I'm going by right now, so it's gonna get a little bit loud. Um, but this is life in the mobile studio, okay? <laughs> 
Um, it's always an adventure. So my friend kind of like shook me in the shoulders and she said like, Wendy, why don't you actually do the thing that you want to do? And then I thought about it in terms of an art project as opposed to in terms of like logistics and necessity. And um, so I started thinking, what could that be? So I worked with this incredible, talented woodworker, Max Schultz. Max and I had a cup of coffee and literally did some napkin sketches together. I found the ideal Honda element with low mileage, picked it up, drove it back. So the Honda Element, I think, is one of the least appreciated vehicles by people who don't know, but people who do know are, it's, there's a cult following for the Honda Element. It's also known as the bread box. It's also kind of the dream design car in that it's very modular. <laughs> First of all, if I were to bring somebody else in here, it'd be a little tight. It's definitely a one person situation. I did make the bed extend. Um, that was based on the insistence of my wife who says, yes, this is great. I support you, but you better take me with you on the road sometimes. So it can fit too, but it's a pretty tight squeeze. So when somebody comes inside, they experience two things. One is that it's super cozy and it, it is it does feel like being in your own little world in here. Um, and also there's the big reveal moment of, of opening up the drawing table and underneath the table, which, which flips up, uh, it are all my art supplies in all these little kind of custom made, custom sized cubby holes that fit each individual item that I use. And it looks pretty cool, I think. And it works really well. So there is that. And also there's the moment when people realize that I have a fire extinguisher here just in case, because my wife used to be a firefighter and you know. I was, I was lucky when I was little to have a little studio slash lab in the, in the backyard of my parents' house, the little plywood house that my dad had um, built for me. And I would go out there and I would mash up things like leaves and flowers and water and call it some kind of magic poison or something like that. And also do a lot of drawings, you know, on the walls and on the labels and all that kind of stuff. So I, I do have a memory of having this dedicated space so key in giving like a you know kid that boost of creativity and one of the reasons this was such a special project and i do consider this um an art piece in a way is i like let my imagination go there like what is if i could make this the best that it could be um to serve the work that i do and actually be an instrument in the work what would it be and how uh, we made it and i'm really proud of that Wendy's essentially made it her mission to draw attention to what's happening on society's margins, with deeply humane and humorous hand-drawn stories on such diverse subjects as green burials, autonomous trucking, and the most fabulous old folks' home ever. In our first interview, Wendy reflected on her early impulses to immerse herself in a creative space and lose herself in a world of her own invention.
I'd like to begin by exploring what your sense of yourself as a creative child is, when you, what you remember in your own kind of history. Again, not so much the context of your childhood, yeah. though if that's interesting, please talk about it, but m more how you remember yourself, how you remember this creative spirit of yourself as a child and how it manifests. Yeah, I will say that I've not been asked that before. So, <laughs> nice start. <laughs> um, but I have thought about it. Right. I remember when I was, I don't know, maybe like four or five or something like that. I used to have these workbooks uh, that had exercises and drawing exercises and um, little, you know, connect the dot stuff, things like that. And there was a picture of a little kid sitting at a butcher block table. Um, with a glass of milk, some cookies on a plate, and they were drawing. And I saw that picture on the cover of this workbook, and I went to my mom and I said, this is what I want to do with my life. Wow. <laughs> you know, this is what I want to do. And Draw cookies. I, I, well, I wanted, no, I, actually, I wanted to eat the cookies, uh -huh. well, right? Course, and yeah. yeah, and draw. I, I love to draw. Um, but I saw that it was like kind of possible to have this whole experience, you know, like a set up a comfortable mm. experience. So I asked my mom if she would do that. She was very supportive and she set me up in that situation. And that was kind of my first moment that I remember where um, I didn't identify like as an as an artist or a creative person, but I wanted to create a world in which I could make something and eat cookies. Um, and was there a um, was there a sense of, a, of an internal life that was going on, a kind of a rich or creative internal life? I asked that because only because my daughter, when she was really, really small, used to dazzle me with the fact, I've never seen a child do this. She used to close the door of her room. It's a very young child, like three years old or mm -hmm. two years old, who, you know, they don't usually do that. But she wanted her own space and she wanted her own toys. And she would be for hours in this world. And it was, it really exposed a very rich internal life that she had and continues to have. Today. I think parents are probably more aware of the kids' internal lives than the kids are in the moment, right? We're not really quite aware of what's going on. But that resonates with me in that, yeah, I would spend hours in my room. And I still do. Like, I still need a space that is my own where I close the door. Some people are great with shared studio spaces. I need my own studio space. Like, mm -hmm. that is where I flourish. And so that sense of space was always important to cultivate and develop that own yeah, that rich remember, internal life and that creativity. Um, I remember... Uh, I was reading I, – well, I don't remember reading. I was, again, like very young, maybe six or seven years old, and I remember I was reading a picture book. I don't remember reading the picture book, but I remember coming into consciousness when I was called to dinner that I had been lost in this other world for a long time and I didn't want to leave, you know? So I think that's something that I've always had, that I have this kind of private space that I can nice. enter into, nice. you know, whether that be through books or through drawing or – Right. Okay, wonderful. Well, well, we'll we'll see where that goes. And then from there you went just to get the uh, trajectory then you went mm. back to San Francisco you were working as a copywriter. Mm -hmm. Then went to Rwanda, had mm -hmm. that experience which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, mm -hmm. which I know is profound, which also catalyzed you going to social work in Col at Columbia. You got it. Okay. Nice. Okay. And then a return working and then you had the famous Bart moment and then the rest is history, correct? Wow. With a, a little, a, a few little There's zigs a, and yeah, zags yeah, I, in there, but yeah, yeah you got okay, the narrative all right, down pretty all right, well. That's the, yeah, yeah. I'm doing the headlines <laughs> you right got it, now. You okay, got it. all right. So, um, I, I just wanted to make sure we had that kind of shape of of of, of things. Um, so then, I want to talk about 
I want to talk about drawing. Mm. Yeah. And um, you, you've ta- talked about drawing in all kinds of interesting ways, and I w- wonder what you would pick up on. You've talked about it as a uh, as a way to as a way to look and to tell stories. You talked about it, I think, compellingly when you talked about drawing your aunt who was dying in the hospice, about overcoming fear. That drawing was a way for you to be able to do that. Um, you talk about, interestingly, how it's a kind of people who are drawn feel less objectified than they do when there's a camera facing them, which I think is interesting. So there's all these interesting things about drawing for you, and I'm just I'm inviting you to kind of riff on that a little bit and talk about those nuances and ways in which you experience it. Well, you just hit my main points, hmm. so I'm going to riff a little bit. Um, I was just at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco yesterday. This is so it's it's fresh in my mind. I was talking to a friend who just recently started being a guide, and she was kind of giving me a little test drive around with her guy. And we were looking at a Rothko painting, and we looked at it from far away. And then she said, "Now let's move up close." We looked at it from 15 inches away. And she shared with me something that I didn't know that Rothko painted with the intention of something being seen, his paintings to be seen like 15 to 18 inches away because he wanted you to be completely immersed in this like field of color. Kind of works. It does. It's really effective. (laughs) It really works beautifully. And that's also why he painted so large, right? So Mm -hmm. that you're kind of immersed, you're inside of his Mm -hmm. painting. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about what it means for me to draw in a nine and a half inch sketchbook which is pretty much the opposite. Um, whereas he might have, he's creating something that you are overwhelmed with and stuff inside. I think, you know, I draw with a pen in a sketchbook that I can hold in my hand and I draw what I see in front of me. And for me, it's a way of looking intimately at something or somebody, but also at a bit of a safe distance and creating more like a window that somebody can look through that they might not otherwise have the opportunity to. And that somebody is an observer looking at your drawing or the person or thing being drawn or you as the artist looking through that window? Yes. Um, I get to look through it. Right. Let's say you, Lauren, are looking at an image that is in a book of a story or something. you get to see that image in that moment in the way that I look through that window. And oftentimes in the work that I do, I'm spending such time with people, such a lot of time with people that they are looking back through that window at me. And there's a real relationship that happens between the person who I'm drawing and myself. So, yes. Hmm. On a good day. Sometimes the drawing sucks. Because as I, because as I, as you know, no, really, as I I listed all those things, because as I read about you and as I, I, drawing seems to be like breath for you in a way. It's your way of staying alive, right? It can be. I'm a better person when I draw, for sure. Um, It, it's, it's a way that I slow down. It's a way that I understand the world. It's the way that I can. Um, pace my experience of the world. Mm. I can contact, come into contact with people that you know I I don't in my day to day life come into contact with, and that's what's most important to me is wow. getting out of that. You know, so it is like a vehicle for me to experience life.
So I want to move on to talk about what you call your illustrated documentaries. And maybe first begin with, can you define that for the listeners? Yeah, illustrated documentary is also called graphic journalism. It's nonfiction storytelling using drawings and words. The words for me are, um, in my methodology, are uh, words that come from the interviews that I do with people. And I'll spend any time, any length of time from in a day to a month with a person or a group of people. Uh, get as ethnographic as I can. Mm-hmm. Tap into that ethnographic social work training. Um, and draw everything that I see that captures my attention. Ask everything that I can. Um, write down everything that the people that I speak with say. Transcribe as quickly as I can and as accurately as I can. And then take all of the drawings, all of the text, and put them together to tell a story from the perspective of the people who I speak with. So I use the term um, graphic journalism very loosely because I am not a graphic designer nor am I a journalist. And illustrated journalist, sorry, illustrated documentary, I think is a much more appropriate description because I am an illustrator in the sense that I am drawing the world as I see it. Uh, and um, documentary because it involves a lot of editing and subjectivity. I am by no means pretending that this is hard journalism, you know, hard reporting where I'm telling an objective truth, though I don't believe in that objective truth mess anyway. But um, it is very much about my experience of the situation and doing my best to put myself in other people's shoes. But I am the guide through which you, Lauren, if you're looking at a story that I've done, like you're stepping into my shoes to walk through that picture. Mm. You know, there were a number of images that that get conjured for me when I see it too and one you might be interested in is old silent films I thought like if you look at you know if you look at an old Chaplin film like the pawnbroker right 1916 right and the way you see the images and then then the 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 cue card text will come in and tell you something about it and then it will leave and then you have the image again and there's this wonderful kind of playful way in which that works together that I and I get that hit from your work too oh thank you huge compliment yeah I feel like there's a lot to be played with especially in kind of a multi-frame form like a book you know which is very um cinematic in a way um, to to work with like pacing between image and text and to use white space in such a way to create right. pacing and and I suppose it has a comic book heritage to it too oh, but absolutely. I liked the silent film one it just no, it I gave like it a kind too. of quality that is unique to your work in some ways I that actually resonates with me more than a comic book thing I right. definitely avoid like there's a traditional um you know, comic book or graphic novel format with the multiple frames per page and all of this. Exactly. And I am much more like singular image, sparse, linear. So, yeah, that right. that resonates. Right. And you found a, a, a great word for it, which is meanwhile, right? Yeah. Meanwhile is the um, word that I've used for that methodology for that body of work, which I don't think will ever. It's a very cool word. You don't know where it came from? Where? I don't think I've ever talked about this in a. Uh, I was working at that advertising agency um, in San Francisco, a nonprofit advertising agency. Great experience working all with just fantastic organizations doing great work in the world, and I was helping them tell their stories. It was a great, great job. Um, but I was still working in advertising, and I was still working at a desk on a computer a bunch, a few steps removed from people um, on the street. 
And uh, I had spent a lot of time working in East Africa, and I hadn't been back in some time. I used to say that I would, you know, I had to um, work about once a year or so. And I hadn't been back in some time, and I had a, um, a map on my wall of the world, and I took a big piece of paper, and I wrote the word, word meanwhile on it, and I put it up on the map on my wall just to remind myself that as I was sitting here in my little office, meanwhile, all the people that I'd worked with and that I knew and that I cared very deeply about um, were still there, and I could just walk out of my office at any time if I really felt compelled to. So here's a question that arises, therefore. There's a 10-year period in your life when you're not drawing? Oh, I was so depressed. <laughs> I was a wreck. And I don't know if that, you know, I don't, um, I, I'm not going to simplify it to the point where I say I wasn't drawing, so therefore I was de- I was depressed. I, um, I had 10 years that was between what and what? I stopped drawing when I came into Art Center. Yeah. How curious. Right. Right. And I started drawing again about like eight to ten years later while I was um, living in Oakland and working in San Francisco at a nonprofit advertising agency. At, excuse me, a nonprofit advertising agency. Um, I, I am a drawer. I am an artist. I am also a lot of things. I think that, you know, we are all a lot of things. And in the time when I wasn't drawing, I was exploring other sides of who I am, having experiences that make me who I am now that were really important to have. Right. Um, so they were invaluable years. I stopped drawing when I came into Art Center because I was t- probably, what, what, 20 years old or something like that? An impressionable age. Um, trying new things. Trying new things. Right. As one can or should even in school. For sure. Oh, gosh. Absolutely. Of course. Especially as an undergraduate in art school, everybody should try everything completely. I was really interested in like critical theory and I was exposed to all of this conceptual art that, you know, before I had been doing life drawing. Um, and I was excited about ideas and at the time, I say that I was a bit, you know, impressionable because I, there was all of this great stuff going on. And, you know, here are these incredible teachers that I had. And I was like, oh, you know, I respect what this teacher is doing. So maybe I modeled my work a little bit for that teacher. I think a, a lot of people mm-hmm. do that. And mm-hmm. I did that. And that led me away. Um, it led me away from drawing. <sighs> and then was the return to drawing the Bart moment, and I've now re- referenced it twice. Yeah. Is, was, that was the moment when you decided to, when you started drawing again? So, like I said, when I was drawing before, what I loved to do was I loved to draw from life, and I loved life drawing. That was like my training. Right. And so I didn't draw for about 10 years, and I had all these adventures all over and great experiences, um, a lot of different kinds of work. And I was living in Oakland and I was working in San Francisco and I was taking the BART, which is the Bay Area subway, back and forth, you know, from the East Bay to the city every day, twice a day. And I was sitting um, uh, in BART and I looked around and I saw all of these people sitting around me and they were perfectly still and some of them were quite slack-jawed and spacing out and in what I think is a really interesting transitional space between like the personal life at home and the work life at work between two different identities I think there's this kind of place where we actually relax entirely so here's all these like very relaxed people and they reminded me a lot of um, the life 
drawing models that I had drawn. And I had my little moleskin that I, you know, took my notes in at my job. And I had a pen. And so I just, I was kind of compelled to pull it out and start drawing people. So wonderful. Yeah. And that what was. What a great moment. That it just And you haven't stopped drawing since then. No. Yeah. No, I draw yeah. uh, ever since then almost every single day. Yeah. And part of the discovery, um, too, is you, you said, um, again, something that interests me so much. I learned how to ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, so that is l- literally what you are trained to do as a social worker is to ask, mm. is to ask questions. And as an artist, too, um, in a way, right? Yes, absolutely, to different ends, I think. Um, very much with art, the answer is in the question like it is about the pursuit the curiosity and for social work um, a question is an exploration of another person and it's empowering them to explore their own self and the question is also an opportunity to provide support and um, to lead somebody in a direction of supporting themselves so uh, yeah a lot a lot can be communicated in the simple question and 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 your your interest seems to be the telling of the story that comes from the questions yes I mean I'm interested in people and right but you're also interested uh, I mean I, I I take it from all you know is that you're interested in uncovering their stories especially those stories not told yes I am very much interested in uh, the stories that we don't get to hear every day there's right. a lot of stories we get to hear on TV and in the movies of that course. are very spectacular and um, inspiring and whatnot, but I personally am most inspired by kind of everyday people who you walk by on the street who we don't really think uh, right. is carrying a world in, inside themselves, but everybody is. So I have to confess to a preoccupation with your handwriting now. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I well, think, unless, I mean, unless you have issues with it, is that the preoccupation? No, I have. <laughs> the inconsistencies? I, have, I am totally compelled by it and fascinated <laughs> with it and dying to get you to talk about it. Uh, my handwriting, that's funny. Well, it's the lettering. It's the, it's the way in which you, uh, that very distinctive style that you have of the caps and then the conjunctions and the articles that have the script yeah. <laughs> right. And <laughs> the loopiness, the loopiness of it. Uh-huh. And in the focus poster that you did with Courtney Martin, which I want to talk about later, yeah. there's a, it begins with the way those waves that you create. That's not meaning I'm, I'm demonstrating it. People are listening here, meaning it's the, the words seem to go up and down in a wave rather than a straight line. Right. And there's there is and an, there's a delightful humor to it. There is a sense of humor. And by the way, I think there's a sense of humor in just about everything you do. And for a while I was calling it comedy, but there is this, you have this <laughs> fantastic, I can't but giggle when I look at your work in the, in, in the best way. Yeah, you're laughing at it. I hear what you're saying. That's n- fine. N- not at all. <laughs> not at all. But, but it, d- there is this, I mean, it's, it, it, okay, I'll stop. Talk about your lettering. <laughs> Talk about your handwriting. Um, I confess I have different handwritings. So if I am leaving my partner, Caroline, a note to please go, you know, pick up some fizzy water, it might be different than what you see, um, you know, in a drawing. But if I'm being thoughtful, if I'm being deliberate about the words that I'm choosing and I'm going to try and communicate to somebody outside of going to uh, run an errand or something, um, 
it, it, it is going to be the lettering that you see. That's like my thoughtful handwriting. Does that make sense? I feel sure. like maybe we all have. I'm sure doctors, too, have thoughtful handwritings, right? <laughs> maybe. Right. Maybe they don't. Um, They're just reviewing their ambivalence when you can't read their scrawl <laughs> on a prescription <laughs> of, really, should I give this drug to this patient? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think handwriting and drawing is interesting. People ask me how, like young people often will say who are aspiring artists or are artists. Aspiring artists, I think, is a ridiculous term. Um, They're just starting off. How did you develop your style of drawing? And my question is usually, well, how did you develop your style of handwriting? I don't, I... um, you you just do it every single day a lot, and eventually you can only write how you write. You know, maybe you have different, like I said, different styles depending on you know which one. Different styles depending on what you're trying to communicate. But uh, my handwriting just developed over over time. Is it's it, changed. Is it part of a vernacular of illustrators? I've done several books that have been entirely handwritten, um, and there was one that I was about to do that was a lot of text, and I said, I just can't do it. My hand cramps, and then if I do any misspellings, with I'm spelling, doing misspellings constantly all the time, I have to go back and fix them in the computer. I decided I would make a font of my handwriting. Right, and I saw that um, in... I can't remember which book. A couple of books. It looked like it was a typeface that you did, yeah. Yeah, in one book. I did it once. Which one is that? It's called Knives and Ink. That's right, Knives and Ink. I yeah. saw it there. Yeah. That is the one time you will see a typeface that is used in my handwriting. You right. will never see that. I mean, never say never. But as far as where I, from where I stand right now, you're never going to see that again. I'm very proud of that book, and I'm proud of how it looks, and it works for that book. But to have my handwriting um, become something that maybe some people can't tell that it's it's digitized, I can see the repetitions. And more than that, Writing stories for me is almost like drawing in that it is like um, a physical channeling of experience. And I really, it sounds romantic, but there's like emotion that comes through me and onto the page. And I believe in some mythical way that like it comes out of the page and into the eyes and into the heart of the reader. And when that um, action of putting the pen to paper is removed from the process, I truly believe that it interrupts the flow of emotion. Right. And I'm here to tell you it works and it works beautifully. And it's part of why I became so interested in this as I was thinking about your work. Mm. And I did focus on the humor part of it, the whimsy. And, and, and I think there is this amazing sense of humor to your work. I, again, I don't think it's just funny haha. I think it's it's whimsy and not in the sense of being, you know, frivolous or fanciful. Whimsy in the sense of being playful and witty and 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 the handwriting is the manifestation of that oh i appreciate that so uh i've i've just finished this project and it's uh, it's 120 pages and it's it's the title is how to say goodbye um and it has a lot of people drawings of people who are in the at the end of their life and it's pretty heavy right this is like not a hilarious topic. Um, and a dear friend of mine, Courtney Martin, um, she and my partner, Caroline, were kind of my two editors on this project. And Courtney, Good editors. I know. I got yeah, very lucky. Yeah, those are great writers. Right. Yeah. They're both incredible. Two of my favorites. Very lucky. Um, 
Courtney pointed out to me, and rightfully so, she said, this is all, it's, it's beautiful, meaningful, heavy, but all this great stuff. You know, but one thing that's missing is your humor in mm. this. And yeah, life can be hard. <laughs> and I'm Jewish. So it's kind of like humor is like something that we bring into things in order to get through it. You know, um, it's something that I use and it's just kind of the way that I see the world. And if it's not injected in just a little bit here and there into even the heaviest of moments, it can ring hollow. I'll, I'll give you one man's response to that or to your to your work that Please. way in terms of the humor. There's always this this lightness to it that I experience. Right. And so in the end, really, what I thought was whether or not it's that or that's just my sort of crazy mind operating, the breeze blows through your work in this lovely way and it leaves something open, you know, and it gets back to that story. It's the way in which you allow us into it. That makes me really, really happy that you say that. I'm glad. I don't want any story to be um, a closed, uh, contained or locked experience. Down. No, it's not. no. I, hopefully, it's. I, I have questions that I that I bring to a person or to a situation. The story is an exploration of those questions, which hopefully then brings up questions in you. And I do feel like um, laughter. You know, just like. Um, if we're moving straight ahead, sometimes you got to step and come at things to the right, you know, from just a slightly different direction. Oftentimes we do exactly. that using humor. And it just shows a reader, it shows me that there's other ways to look at things, you know, not get locked in, to just remember that there's other perspectives to go on and to, to be able to move around within a story. You are listening to Change Lab. Explore more of Wendy McNaughton's work at wendymcnaughton.com and womenwhodraw.com. Can you talk about the San Francisco Library a bit? That's such a great Libraries story. are amazing. Libraries are... Do you spend much time in, like, a public libraries? Have you spent much time in public libraries? Not enough. Not no. enough. I mean, I've been in that library. I spent time in the San Francisco Library. It's a pretty yeah, epic that's library. That's a pretty great one. Yeah. yeah, that's the main branch. The main branch is right in the middle of downtown Civic Center, San Francisco. Yeah, my libraries were always on, you know, university campuses and things like that as yeah. I was going through it. which are know. all, I mean, come on, so beautiful. Right. But very different because it's an academic library. When I started doing these these meanwhile columns, I was doing them for um, an online publication, a literary publication called The Rumpus. And um, the San Francisco Public Library was one of the first stories that I did. After a couple days, I kind of threw up my hands and I asked a gentleman who was standing with a guard, what is it that you love about this library? Just ask a really general open-ended question. And as soon as I did that, as whole world opened up, he said, um, well, if it wasn't for the library, I'd still be living on the streets. Oh, okay, there's probably a story there. Can you tell me more about it? He says, well, there's a social worker who works on the top floor of the library, and she helped me. And I, there's a social worker? I had no idea. And, and this social worker mm -hmm. was actually hired by the library? She was the first full-time social worker at any library in the United States. Wow. And her job was, her name was Leah, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. her job was? 
uh, to do outreach uh, to primarily like the homeless population that was using the library for a myriad of services, A, to just get off the street and have a place to rest, um, B, to use the internet, C, to create resumes and get jobs, to find social services. Anyway, it turns out that you know, there was enough people that warranted full-time service. So she created an outreach program where she hired people who were spending their time, homeless people who were spending their time in the library to do outreach to other homeless folks that were in the library um, and created this entire program that now has become the model for other libraries throughout the United States, and there are several full-time social workers. So. And by the way, do you know who had that vision? Who was uh, at the library at the time? Who had that? Leah. I, I think Leah that, herself. I think she was working for the Department of Public Health for the city, and I think she was in there part-time just doing some basic services, and she, I really think it was her who... Um, you know, talk about a creative who enterprise. suggested yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, social workers are amazing I'm telling you of course the leadership at the library is fantastic um, and open to it and and saw the value I mean, you need and all the significance of, of that to the mission right right you need the leadership to support something like that so you do. yeah you do you do yeah so I spent the time drawing there um, and then uh, met a ton of people in the library drew for about a month in the library and that was the first book that I ever published the city of San Francisco funded the publication of a small little chap book and the other bit of work I just uh, that I, I find so compelling is the the focus poster that you did with Courtney Martin that's so great yeah did you get a copy of that? No, but I want to re- uh, read. I didn't. No, I mean, I, thank that. you. I, I want to read just so people can hear this, and then maybe if you can talk about it a bit. Um, just little excerpts of it. Feel all the things. Feel the hard things, the inexplicable things, the things that make you discover. Oh, sorry. The things that make you disavow humanity's capacity for redemption. Feel afraid. Feel powerless. Feel frozen and then focus. Courtney's writing? Yes. Or you did it collaboratively? It was collaborative, but I'll definitely, let's, it was Courtney's and I nosied my way in with a few words here and there, but it was a great collaboration and Courtney Martin is just an incredible writer, an incredible mind. She is, and I, and, and what occasioned this poster? What, what's the story behind it? Um, Courtney and I are dear friends, and in the wake of the recent election, we found ourselves um, at a loss for what the heck to do. Um, And as creative people, we were trying to figure out how we could kind of be of use. Um, And we were feeling very powerless, and we were feeling like... We needed to take all of our energy and we ourselves needed to focus. And we had these conversations over coffee. What can we do? How can we, how can we make something? Um, and we decided to make this poster together um, as a call to action for artists, for creative people, for writers, um, for activists to move through the feelings of disempowerment and through the feelings of frustration and take all the anger and the sadness and focus that and sharpen it into a very fine point and then get the F to work 
and start moving forward using all of that fuel. So there's a very profound healing quality to it just because it begins by acknowledging the feelings, right? It begins by speaking those words, naming those things that are so frightening to us. And then maybe through the naming, they're less frightening. Right. And then we can find the courage and we can find the strength to go forward and work. Exactly. And focus. And And focus was a really big um, purpose of this because we felt like everything was very fractured. Everybody's energy was going in a million different places, you know, whether that was uh, by design in some ways, you know, um, or if it was just through sheer panic. Uh, We felt like focusing all of our good energy and frustrated energy um, into that like creative pursuit was just so urgent in that moment. Right, right. And then you conclude the, 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 the text of the poster with the, you know, if things had never been broken, nothing new would be built. And then, of course, the Leonard Cohen famous line, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. Who you call the wise man. Yes. And he is indeed. Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It was healing for us and it was effective for us. And we both have the posters on our walls. Um, We printed a limited number of them. I worked with a a traditional broadside printer and we printed up, oh gosh, what was it? 100, 200 of them, I think, maybe. And through everybody who purchased one of the posters, we raised a total of $21,000 for Hedgebrook. Yeah. So hopefully people were able to focus and also support um, women writers in moving forward. It's a great piece. And it, um, you know, it acknowledges feeling, it gets us to focus, and it also gives us some sense of what our call is to do to heal that fractured world. We're in a really interesting time right now, and it's a very interesting time for artists and creative people. I think it's a very interesting time for people who straddle the creative and commercial worlds. Um, I think there is an incredible amount of opportunity to do meaningful work right now. I do think there is a lot of opportunity for people like people who are in fields that before might have felt apolitical. I strongly disagree and say they've always been political, but in the past they've been able to feel apolitical, is becoming quite clear that there is no apolitical, that in all fields of art and creativity, that the work that we're doing is um, creative. We are creating something. We are contributing something to the world, and that um, has meaning. It conveys ideas. It alters feelings, changes minds, and compels action. And as um, creative communicators and artists, we are fully responsible for the implications of all of that. And so um, while that can be very daunting for people who just kind of like want to make a cool painting or something like, you know, um, I feel like it actually opens up a a great opportunity of responsibility and impact. Um, And I'm excited to see a lot of young people embracing that in a way that in the past they might not have. So I have my own version of that as the president of this college of art center. You know, that, well, I never wanted to um, in any way use the, um, my, the presidency as a platform for the political, but I can't not do that anymore. Yeah. Because uh. there is some, because our students are, it, it, one reason is because so much is at stake for so many of our students. At stake for every single And they need students. me to fight for them. Everything is at, at stake for all of us. And I would say that it always has been. It's just that there's been a lot of us who have been very privileged not to um, 
to feel it immediately. And so now I think we're just all acutely aware of um, how urgent it really is. And I'm I'm excited. I'm excited at um, the passion, like the the focus that I'm seeing coming from a lot of young people and from a lot of people in the creative fields, who are stepping up in ways that is are, it's really new. Um, people who are working in commercial fields suddenly are, are, you know, throwing themselves into pro bono projects and stuff like they never have done before, you know, or, or leaving their jobs to go do some more meaningful work, you know, and um, I, I think that's exciting. So last time I saw you, I was telling you about some writing that I'm doing. Yeah. And that I'm really interested in. And it's all about how we make things to get, gain knowledge. We right. make to know. People think that there's some vision and then the artist goes forth and manifests that vision. And I actually think some people do that. I think that I'm not actually saying that. But something else happens. And it's the doing of it that reveals. It's the doing of it that surprises, right? Joan Didion has this great quote that says, had I been blessed with even limited access to my own mind, there would have been no reason to write. That's good. Yeah. So how do you make sense of that make-to-know process in your own Let me ask you that when life? you say that you, in your own work you experience that, do you mean your writing? So if you're writing, you in have In my writing, idea. in my work as a theater director, uh-huh. as my work as a teacher, as my work as a college president, uh-huh. in every bit of my own work, by doing it, but more than just a kind of John Dewey learn by doing, there's a, a, there's a much more nuanced, much wider kind of process of discovery that happens only through making. Yeah, I'm with you. That's art, right? To me, I understand it's different to other people. You gave, you told a really interesting story when you were talking at Art Center a few months ago, where you said sometimes you, when when you're feeling particularly stuck, or, uh, you just you go to a cafe and you draw coffee cups yeah. over and over again. Oh, lots of coffee. And that cups. that becomes a kind of uh, 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 meditation, a kind of mantra, maybe, or a a, a, a beginning to getting you into the the rhythm of the doing that. It's, it's just a physical thing. It's just a, it's like you just get the motor going. I mean, I really think it might be as simple as that. It's you, um, I get my hands going. I draw a coffee cup, and then I draw the profile of somebody who's sitting at a table, and then I draw the barista behind the bar. And then the next thing I know, my hand is flowing, uh, you know, without – it's it, my hand is less stuck, and my um, head just starts going. Ideas come. They flow but if I were to sit there and stare at a wall and try and come up with an idea, I could just might as well just tear my hair out. It's not gonna. It's not gonna work. Right. You know. It's right. actually through like. Yeah. Yes, I need. The I doing. need that too. I used to always marvel at um, theater directors who could actually stage or block the the play in the margins of a text. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I couldn't do it. I couldn't even begin. And then when as soon as I got into a rehearsal hall and I saw real people in real space, it just. It came to me. So as, why do you think that was? Is it um, because of the dynamics with the people? Is it because of this? You actually need to see it? Because I, I, I was making it. I was rehearsing it. I uh-huh. was in space. You're in it. I was in a the- something that was um, at least mimicking a theatrical space that allowed me to begin to write. Which makes Whereas sense. Whereas the margins of the 
But some people are really good Which at is that. So, oh, I'm sure they're so great at that. But it doesn't make any sense to me because theater is experiential. To me, drawing is experiential. Like I draw from life. I don't – if I drew from my imagination, it would be a completely different practice. I draw from life. So if I'm not sitting amidst life and like taking notes with my hand, which means drawing, then – I, I, I just would have nothing, you know. I'm completely in awe of people who are, you know, novelists, graphic novelists, whatever it is, who just have this incredible uh, imagination, this wealth of knowledge that they're pulling from to put things together and create. That is not me at all. Yeah. So part of the this whole story of the Make to Know is the delight of surprise. Yeah. And I think we get, as creative people, we can get addicted to surprise in a certain way. And it was a p- part of what Joan Didion is talking about too, right? Uh, so uh, somebody asked me this. They asked if I get nervous when I, when I go out, like in the street to do a story or whatever, to go... Um, and I get nervous every single time. I'll lie in bed and I'll think, oh, my God, I have to get up and I have to go out and talk to people. I have to draw today. I'm going to suck. My drawing's going to be terrible. My hands are way off. It's just not going to work today. I'm Nobody's going to want to talk to me. I mean, all of these things, you know, go through my head. Um, but I get up and I go out into the street and I, you know, wherever it is that I'm drawing. And through the act of being there... Of course, there's a little bit of a rocky start. There's like, you know, some fit fit starts. Like it's just it's rough at first. But then through the act of going out and being there, things that I could never imagine would would happen. They do happen every single time that I, I go out and I get up like the chutzpah to put myself out there. Something unexpected happens. And I, at the end of the day, I look back and I'm like, my God, if I had stayed in bed, that entire world would be wouldn't exist to me. You know, I would never have had the opportunity to step into that and to learn about that. And that would have been such a loss. Mm -hmm. So that to me is such a reminder, whether it be sitting down and drawing and just keeping the hand going to see what comes of it or going out and talking to people or what turning right instead of left, whatever it is, like, just just go for it. And the most unexpected, beautiful things happen. Yeah. Perfect. Wendy, thank you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Mm-hmm.